I, I, I love to say, and I put it at the beginning of the book, hitting is simple. It's just not that easy. Hey, that's my guest for this week. That's Kevin Wilson, author of The Good Batting Book, a slim volume that breaks down the mental approach to hitting a baseball or a softball. Now, I'm just going to read a little bio of Kevin right off the back of his book. It's, uh, it says, Kevin Wilson is one of the most respected hitting coaches in the game. You should also say he's a former minor league ball player, retired at the age of 28. Since 2001, he has been the president of Kevin Wilson Baseball, LLC. He works behind the scenes as a private hitting consultant to some of the best hitters in Major League Baseball. Also, in 2013, he was the hitting coach for the USA Baseball 18 and under national team, helping them win a gold medal in Taiwan. Oh, and uh, hey, this is the Hashtag CNF Podcast, where I speak with creators of nonfiction about their lives and their work. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara. Thank you for listening. Well, I have your attention at the top of the show. Go follow Kevin on Twitter at KWBaseball. It's more than just baseball, as you'll find out when we talk about his career in his book. You could substitute good batting for good writing or good dancing or good juggling, which is why I wanted to speak to him about it. Not the juggling, but the universality of a lot of the principles that he preaches in his book. And, uh, well, one last bit of housekeeping. I ask that you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and my newsletter at brendanomera.com. It's just a monthly newsletter of book recommendations that I think you'll dig. Um, So in any case, that is it. Enjoy episode 32, the first of the new year, with Kevin Wilson. Thank you. Given that we're in the beginning of January, um, I wanted to kind of get your impressions about how you go about approaching the new year and uh, what what kind of things that you focus on. Because uh, focus is a big, big mantra and what you, what you write about and what you preach. Sure, yeah. Going into this year, I think um, you know a good friend of mine, Joe Ferrero, who's the host of a podcast, KWB Radio, that we, we both do um, – He's big into this one word, the John Gordon type of thing of, of one word for the new year. Uh, I have not come up with mine yet. I know my wife has come up one. He has one. Um, but I have not come up with mine yet only because I, I it, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but I'm kind of running out of words. Uh, you <laughs> talked about focus and purpose. Those are those are two of the words that I've kind of locked into in the last three or four years. Um, and for me, I mean, if you want to do anything in life uh, and be successful at it, uh, for me, uh, purpose and, and having a focus uh, on what you're doing is a, is a huge part of it. And so for me, um, you know, if you're, if you're focused on what you're doing, um, if you've got that tunnel vision, so to speak, you know, that purpose allows you to have that tunnel vision. So I, I'm, I'm really kind of focusing on that uh, for, for myself every single day. I want to have a purpose for everything I do. Uh, I want to stay focused on the task. But at the same time as well, I want to make sure I have some perspective to what I'm doing. Yeah, that, that kind of segues into another thing I want to ask you. Like given that your life is so, is so um, sort of like uh, richly focused on, on, on baseball and hitting and I, I wonder, like, how do you choose to unplug from that? Like, what kind of hobbies do you have that turns the baseball off and lets you sort of live a more well-rounded 
life and uh, allows you to come back to baseball recharged and more energetic than ever? That's a great question, man. I for for me, it, it's it's really tough to balance. And what I've found to work for me in the past is reading and podcasting mm. um, and listening to podcasts, other people's podcasts like yours, and uh, and reading books uh, written by other people that tend to focus on leadership, uh, self-awareness, uh, things that help, um, you know, just grow you as a person. Cause for me, you know, I'm my own boss. I don't answer to anybody other than the players that I work with on a daily basis. Uh, so for me, I need to go outside of the world of baseball, uh, in order to learn, uh, in order to, to, uh, learn from others who are way better at leadership, way better, you know, I guess growing and maturing and uh, and fostering uh, their goals than, than I am. So so that's where I learn. And so it's funny to unwind. Uh, I'll read and listen to a ton of podcasts. Do you uh, like you say you you read a lot of books on on leadership and and listen to podcasts? Um, do you read any more uh, any like narrative based stuff, some some fiction, or do you try to keep it more stuff that you can sort of directly apply to your your life and daily practices. Uh, going back to a, that purpose we're talking about, everything I try to do everything with a purpose. So mm-hmm. the books that I choose have a, a, an absolute purpose to them. And for me, again, it's it's growing myself as a leader, as a person, uh, as a as a person that's in a position to make uh, positive impacts on others, uh, to influence others in a positive manner. So for me, definitely the books are, are chosen with uh, with with a purpose. Uh, you know, I, for example, you know, I've I've got I just finished up. Uh, uh, Give and Take by Adam Grant. Uh, that book had been on my bookshelf for a while, and I finally got around to reading it. So, um, you know, he he's a, a local guy in Philadelphia. He's a professor at uh, at University of Pennsylvania. I think he's actually the youngest tenured uh, professor. He's younger than me. He's I think thirty three or thirty four. Um, but that guy's written uh, a couple good books. One being that Give and Take. So for me, I definitely have a purpose in everything I do, and especially when it comes to to what I read. What was your biggest takeaway from Give and Take? Well, it's it's. I think it's like all others that that have read that book. Uh, for those listening that have read that Give and Take book, is is the term he uses other otherish, and uh, it's kind of a mixture of being a giver and also knowing when to take, because givers can be exposed. And I was exposed to that uh, early in my career when I was coaching and and um, and kind of building my company there you know I'm a giver at heart so for me sometimes I I gave and gave and gave and gave and um, you know I was I was burned by those that that were takers uh, so that middle ground if you want to take it you know it, the extremes are givers and takers that middle ground that he calls other issues someone that has a really good sense of feel of understanding that still give but uh, you know, just be aware of the people early on that could be takers, and and you yourself have to be able to uh, allow yourself to to take a little in order to give more to others. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. So, at what point did it become more than say a, a pipe dream that you could advance through the highest levels of ball? Probably my senior year of high school. So, kind mm-hmm. of to backtrack real quick, I. I Broke my leg in 10 places when I was in eighth grade. So I really started to focus on baseball uh, solely uh, my freshman year of high school. So I was a little bit of a late bloomer. Uh, mm-hmm. I was behind the eight ball, but I was older. I was 16 as a freshman in high school. So I was I was older than, than the kids I was playing with. And I always played against older competition anyway. So I was, I was 
you know, routinely beat down mm-hmm. <laughs> because I was playing with older kids. And, uh, and if any parents are listening out there, that, that's a, a tremendous, uh, a tremendous opportunity to play up a level or two and to really, um, learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think, I think parents today too much, they, they try to put, you know, if they're not playing, their kid's not playing on this team, they put them on another team. Um, and they, they give, 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 and, and the kid never really understands or learns how to handle adversity. So for me, I didn't really start getting good until senior year of high school. So for me, that's when I realized like, man, I might have a shot at this, not only at the college level, but at the professional level, because, um, you know, I, I, I started to understand, you know, just feel more comfortable, but I, I started to understand how to play the game. It sounds crazy, but as a senior in high school, things started to slow down. Huh. The game started to slow down because of the fact that I just I, I was more experienced. I, I understood how what I was doing, how I was going about certain things. So, you know, as a freshman on varsity, I was a scared kid. You know, there's a big difference. Even though I was older at 16, I was played against 18 year olds. But when you get to college or beyond and you're playing you're 18 or 19 and you're playing with 21 year olds or 22 year olds, that's a huge transition too. So my senior year is when I first started to get the inclination that, hmm, I might have a shot. And then when I got to college, my freshman year of college, I realized I have a long ways to go in terms of work ethic, in terms of ability. Uh, But I still, I had the talent, I just didn't know how to work yet. So that college experience really helped me formulate that and got, got me a chance to play the next level. How did your your own confidence and your own ability withstand those the beatdowns that it took by playing a, a level up? Because, as 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 you well know, playing at this level, playing at really any sport at any level, it's sometimes talent becomes almost universal, but it becomes a, a how you deal with the the mental aspect of it and confidence and bringing that and that sort of edge to the game. So how did you how did you keep your confidence when you were experiencing as you say like these beatdowns from playing a level up? Wow, I mean, I it the confidence part early on, it was just non-existent. It wasn't there. Wow. And I'll just be honest with you and and I think again just talking to the line of work that I do and now and and uh, you know if you talk to other athletes too they'll they'll if they're being honest with you they'll tell you probably similar things where there are times where you just have no confidence and it's a scary thing but for me what drove me is I didn't have a backup plan hmm. so it's kind of similar to the guys that I played with coming from the Dominican Republic in pro ball or they come from Venezuela or they come from other places outside the U.S. and Canada and they really have nothing to go back on. Because if you release a kid, uh, you know, he's from the Dominican, he, you know, I've seen it. They cry and, you know, they cry and cry because they know that they're going back to the island. They had their one shot and they didn't make it um, in the minor league. So it is it's a very impactful thing. And so you're playing out of fear. You're not playing out of fear that uh, you're going to go over four. You're just playing out of fear like I have nothing else to do. So I better figure this thing out. Because plan B is non-existent. So plan A, I got to make it work. So for me, at that lowest time, to, to, in order to get back to the confidence, because of course you, you regain it. Um, but, you know, for me, it was just that fear of, listen, I, 
I got to figure this thing out. And, you know, sometimes I overwork too. I mean, sometimes you spend six hours in the cage where all you needed was 30 minutes. Mm. Uh, you learn those types of lessons, almost like what not to do. But, uh, but you know, in terms of the confidence and uh, for me, it was just, man, I, I'm going to outwork and I'm going to work harder. And I'm almost kind of, you know, I got my uh, PF flyers on. I'm just going to go after this thing. Huh. And I don't know if it's going to be right. But at the same time is I'm not <laughs> I'm not letting this thing defeat me, um, you know, because I really don't have a, that backup plan. Did you have a, a mentor or a, a really influential coach who who was able to, you know, so to pull you up when you were feeling low and to sort of and to sort of feed you and say and, and, and give you that validation that allowed you to do purposeful hard work that ultimately led to your that that success that you started started really um sort of calcifying in your senior year of high school well i'll tell you what there's two people the senior year of high school and then when i was a freshman in college there's two people that i want to mention and and i don't think i've really mentioned this uh in the public before so this is pretty cool that you you asked that question because uh they know this um but you know i want to make sure that there's many more people that understand that, uh, you know, it takes a village. So number one in high school, there's a assistant coach, uh, by the name of Chris Marchuk. He pitched in the, uh, expos for, you know, this is going back. So expos, they don't even exist anymore. And the mm-hmm. Phillies and, um, left-handed pitcher, he pitched at Harvard. He was a math major at Harvard. Then he came back He went to my high school, uh, obviously before I went there and, um, pitched for, for a few years in the minor leagues. And then when he retired, he came back to coach. Well, he had just come off of um, um, the playing field and straight into coaching us. So for me, he was the first person that really challenged me. I mean, this guy was all over me with every little detail, like in terms of, you know, he made sure that I understood that practice was starting in a minute, 32 seconds from now. And he would send, you know, 10 seconds later, he said, okay, practice is going to start a minute, 22 seconds. I'm like, this guy's nuts. What is this guy doing? <laughs> you know, he had, he, you know, there were certain things that he really started to dig on me and, um, make a long story short, he's, re- he's the first one that really opened my eyes up to everything you do in life has to have a purpose to it if you want to be successful. So in terms of that stopwatch, um, I thought it was just being an 18 year old kid. I'm like, this guy's annoying. Uh, but as he kept wearing on me and wearing on me, it was like, man, he just kept adding every week something new, something new to have purpose on. And, you know, in terms of how to run the basis, the energy level you need to be at, what to say to certain guys, um, you know, where to stand here and there. And it's just he wasn't manipulating me and like holding my hand all the time, but he picked his spots. So number one, he Chris Marchuk in high school, he was the one that really started to get me prepared for the next level in terms of what I need to do to stay focused and have that purpose. Second, when I got to um, – I went to the University of Cincinnati, and uh, my freshman year was not a good one. Um, you know, I was Philadelphia Player of the Year in high school. I thought that I had it all figured out. You know, the scouts were talking to me. I didn't, I didn't get drafted in high school. I went to college, but I still was flying on cloud nine. Now – the backstory a little bit to this is I never played. We didn't have travel ball back then. This is the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have any travel ball. Perfect game wasn't around. Um, we just played, you know, uh, what do you call it? Town ball. And so 
in Philadelphia, for those that are not familiar with baseball in Philadelphia, especially at that time, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I faced a kid that threw above 85 miles an hour. Now I go to college. The first kid I faced in the fall was throwing 94 miles an hour. He got drafted by the Reds and, you know, six months later. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm getting my doors blown off. So there was an assistant coach that was there and I still stay in touch. I, by the way, I still stay in touch with these both guys, both of these guys. But at Cincinnati, there was a guy by the name of Kerry Daniel who had just got done playing and um, I remember that fall. I mean, I, I was, you know, I came there. I was one of the better players that come in, uh, you know, with recruiting class that had come in there. By the way, I had signed to go to Cincinnati after I graduated high school. Now, kids, if they're mm-hmm. kids, you know, listening to this now, then in 2017, they, they might be like, well, how'd you get a chance? Because everybody seems to verbal so early. But so, again, I sign late. I go there. I don't know anybody other than the coach. And there we have a guy that uh, is our third baseman by the name of Kevin Euclid, who won a World Series with the Red Sox. We're oh, in the yeah. same grade. And I'm thinking, huh. OK, I'm, I'm coming in hot shot this guy. And I see this guy over here, Euk, And I'm like, man, you know what? You know, I'm who is this guy? You know, he doesn't look like the prototypical baseball player. You know, he's kind of. And, you know, he, he he doesn't, you know, he's kind of, you know, I mean, he's the same as what he was when people saw him in the big leagues, can absolutely rake. The guy was just a pure hitter. And I'm like, wow, I don't know. I don't have a shot. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But Kerry Daniel pulled me aside because halfway through fall ball, I wanted to quit. Hmm. And I was like, I can't take it. I can't take it. Now, I told you before, I played up, up levels and I played against older guys. But again, coming from where I came from, I didn't face this type type of competition, even when they were older. And so I was, man, I was just overwhelmed with everything. You know, going away for the first time, you got school, you're at a pretty decent high caliber Division One program. And this guy took me under my wing. He goes, no, you're not stopping. You're not quitting. And he really was the person. If it wasn't for him, I would have quit. Now, I don't know what it would happen to me. I probably would have picked it up later on somewhere, transferred maybe closer to home. But Kerry Daniel is the reason that I stayed at, at Cincinnati. And he's he's the number one reason where I got a shot to play professional baseball because, you know, he kept me there. What was that conversation like that you that you had with him that, that ultimately persuaded you to stay? He just believed in me. As simple as that. I mean, not that my coach didn't believe in me, but I mean, Brian Cleary was our coach and I'm dear friends with him now, but you know, he was 28 years old and we were 18, 19. Um, so it was his first head coach job too. And he come from uh, Tulane to Cincinnati. And so we were all trying, this is all our first kind of rodeo. It was his first rodeo as a head coach. It was our first rodeo as freshman. He was trying to uh, change the culture of the program because before I got there, they, they only won 12 games all year out of 56. Mm. And so my freshman year, we only won 15. I mean, plus three in the scorecard. But, you know, the next year we won 30. So we doubled it in two years. But my point being is that Brian had a lot of things going on. He was recruiting. He was trying to establish a culture. It was, it's not his fault. It just, he, he didn't have much time to really take Kevin Wilson aside and say, hey, listen, how are you feeling? Um, Later on, he would do that for sure down the road. But but Kerry, he just believed in me. And, and I think that's a – no matter what walk of life you're in, you know, if you're in baseball, if you're in business, if you're an author, if you're a singer, if we're human beings at heart, right? So if someone tells you genuinely that they believe in you, we all need that reassurance. We all need somebody that we trust 
to tell us that every once in a while. So Carrie Daniel was that person that told me, it's like, listen, I believe in you. You know, I may be the only one on this campus that does. Mm-hmm. But at the, at, the, at the end of the day, all it takes is one person. And so from there, that's where I started to believe that because it was a simple five-minute conversation. And that's why I, I like to say a lot, um, you know, on our show and, and when I talk to people, I like to say all it takes is five minutes to change someone's life. And for him, that five minutes, he changed my life. What did it feel like leaving his office or wherever you had that conversation after those five minutes? Like what what did what happened to you like chemically in your body? It it must have felt like you were reborn in a lot of ways. So like how how did that feel when you left that conversation? Well, yeah, what the the cool part about it now looking back is that conversation was had in a hallway. Mm-hmm. Um that not not on the field, not in an office, it was in a hallway outside of our locker room. And and no one really knew that that conversation was going on. And I love that. I do that to this day. I have those kind of five minute or those side conversations where no one knows what's going on. I just, I love that part of it. But when I left that conversation, there was a mix of emotions. And I mean, I, I remember like it was yesterday. I think like anybody, you know, those impactful moments, you just remember them so clearly. Um, and so I left and I had all these emotions. I was walking back. Uh, we had to stay on campus our freshman year in the dorm. So my dorm was right next to the baseball field. And so, you know, it wasn't a long walk, but I was going to go to the cafeteria afterwards and, and have uh, dinner. And I remember that walk and it's a short walk. I mean, it's probably a hundred yards, but it seemed like I walked for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And because it was such a slow, I like, I walked so slowly because I was just, uh, just all this pressure was released from my shoulders. And I started to really feel for the first time that it's okay. I belong here because like I said, I, this whole process was late. I would, I, I signed after high school and, and uh, two months later I'm on campus and it, everything just really, really happened really quickly. So I didn't have a chance to really, uh, I don't know, appreciate or to really uh, comprehend what was going on. So that walk to the cafeteria, it felt so long because I had all these thoughts going through my mind. But the the biggest thought was, you belong. You belong. Because that's what he told me. He's like, Kev, you belong here. You absolutely belong here. And don't worry about what anybody else says. I see it in you. I believe in you. I know you got that talent. But you got to do me a favor and you got to do yourself a favor. You got to act like you belong here. You know, so and that was the gist of the conversation. So that walk was just a bunch of emotions. But I I really started to embrace the campus, embrace me being a Bearcat Division one baseball player, uh, believe in my talents, believe in myself. And so when I got to eat, I just sat by myself. I I didn't eat with anybody. I sat by myself, I sat in silence. I went back to my room. Uh, my roommate was gone the rest of that night. Um, and so I just sat in silence by myself and I just, as the hours went on, I just started to really, really, uh, appreciate everything I was, I was having. And then I started to get, by the end of the night, I started to get really excited about let's go. You know, we had an off day tomorrow. Of course, the next day we had an off day. I'm like, man, I just want to get on the field. I want to get on the field and I got to wait. So I remember going in, I, I, you know, on an off day, you just can't, uh, it's not really an off day, but coaches can't be around whatever in the fall. So, you know, I did my own stuff on the tee and the cage and the weight room. I was just getting after it. I had this renewed sense of energy and belonging. And I knew it was going to be a tough road. It just, I mean, it, that conversation wasn't going to, um, you know, cure everything, but at the same time, now I had a, a renewed sense of urgency, um, to going through it. So it was pretty cool. 
that's uh, that's incredible that you know that one like you said like how five minutes can can change a life and it's just you get a sense that that's that was the lead domino that like pushed got you like through through college and like ultimately you know you, you get drafted and you play in the minors and and everything so that's uh that's incredible so like so how did your did your approach change how did your approach change after that did uh you know you said you had that renewed sense of energy um what it, how did you put that energy on the spearhead and 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 work work ahead to what you wanted so much yeah, I wish I could tell you that it translated into the stat book. Um, and so, I mean, I don't even know if the stats exist because it was, you know, this is, you know, internet was around, but definitely not, uh, you know, accessible by all. But yeah. I think I hit 130 my freshman year, but I played um, and and I tried it. And so for the biggest thing for me was just uh, I knew there was going to be a long road. But, um, you know, again, and, and he continued to have those conversations with me. He continued to to uh, empower me. Uh, he continued to em- embrace what I was going through. And so it wasn't just that one uh, conversation and then he didn't talk to me the rest of the time. I needed constant, um, I, I shouldn't say care, but constant encouragement. But the biggest thing is I just went after it, man. I, I, I decided to, to what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, I strike out, I don't get a hit. I realized really quick that Oh, I'm not the only one going through this because as I looked around at my other teammates as well, it, it, that perspective started to flood in and said, "Oh, this guy, you know, he's struggling too. I'm not the only one." Because I, when I got there, normally I, growing up, I always uh, compared myself to the best player that I thought was on the field. And at that time, like I said, Uke was the best guy in terms of hitting. I knew I could hold myself defensively, uh, but hitting was a little bit behind uh, behind the uh, eight ball there. So. Um, you know, I compared myself to him and I learned pretty quickly, like you can't compare yourself to Euclid or anybody else. You are, you know, Kevin Wilson, you, you do the best that you can. So it really just, um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I knew what I was doing back then, but I didn't know what I was doing. So basically now being older and can, can look back on things. I think this is a great lesson on life too, is like my good friend, Joe Ferraro says, just try to get 1% better. Every day I was trying to get 1% better, but I wasn't thinking in that way. I was just like, I'm just going to get after it today. And eventually it's going to work out. I know it will because I've, I've always been behind the eight ball and it, you know, my senior year, it finally came. So if it takes me four years to get to that same point, I'll do that. That's fine. I'll just keep going with it. Um, so for me, it was, it was just that constant effort every day. Now there's days that, that, that stunk, you know, I didn't, I didn't do my best, but uh, I had a purpose for what I was doing, and the purpose being that I'm just gonna. I know I'm gonna get there now because Kerry said that he believes in me, and he says I can do it. So I trust him. I believe in him, and I'm gonna prove him right. Yeah, the, that's you hit on something that's really important. Of uh, I think it's real easy for artists, athletes, dancers, and anyone to compare yourself to other people, and it's one of the most toxic things you can do. It's like you really just have to run your own race and focus on the work and it sounds like that that once you say like you didn't look over look beside you to to you and what he was doing and then when you put your head down and be like all right i'm my own player i have my own you know i've got the team at heart but i've also got like my own needs at heart and as soon as you kind of put the blinders on and focus like that that's probably i i don't know i I don't want to put words in your mouth but i suspect that's when you started to see a lot of growth and real development in, in yourself as a player Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's baseball is so unique that in, in my mind, it's an individual sport built within a team concept. 
Yeah. So to, to echo what you're saying. And so you do have to look out for number one. Um, but at the same time, you, you got to be aware of your teammates and you encourage them or whatever. But, you know, you're on the mound by yourself. You're at the plate by yourself. The ball gets hit just to you. And you got to move that ball somewhere else to another individual. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 unlike it, in my mind, it's unlike any other team sport out there. And it really teaches you a lot about life, really, because think about it um, in life. We have to we have to be our own boss. Yeah, we may have bosses if we work in, in, a, in a setting that we have bosses that to answer to. But at the same time, we're, we're in charge of our lives and our careers. And that's something that I think sports really teaches you is you have that sense of urgency and that purpose uh, to be able to, um, you know, master the things that you do well, master your strengths. I feel like and, and that's what I was doing. I was worried so much about my weaknesses. I think a lot of people can relate to this. You worry so much about your weaknesses and, you know, you don't, you don't think about what you're good at and mastering what you're good at. I mean, the guys in the big leagues, the guys I work with, they're good at one thing usually, maybe two. But, I mean, David Ortiz, you think he's good at running bases or catching a ball or – no, he made all his money, his real money I call it, like the millions, by doing one thing, hitting. Um, or, you know, an author is really good at putting, uh, words on paper and you know what, he may not be a very good long distance runner or he may not be a very good speaker, but maybe he's a little introverted, but he's really good at sitting by himself for six months and and banging out a book, um, master what you're good at. And that's the big thing that I learned, uh, going through that, um, that process was I, I was spending way too much time on the weaknesses and not enough time on mastering my strengths. And when you were uh, going through through the minors, and this is something I'm always interested in because it's it's one of those deals where the you know the everyone is everyone's there, but they don't want to necessarily be there. If that makes any sense, because everyone wants to keep ascending the layer of the ladder of uh, of the professional ranks and so forth. And I always I always wonder like how do you having lived it for so long, like how do you balance wanting to be the best teammate while knowing that everyone wants to kind of keep climbing up through the, through the A's and ultimately try to reach the show? I'm just going to be honest. And and I think that's uh, for life in any way, that's, that's the best way we can go about things. But when you're in the minor leagues, it's all about you, Mm. you know? And so for me, the biggest thing is uh, as a minor league baseball player is you have to look out for yourself And, um, you know, some organizations will preach, you know, it's about the team and this and that. And again, you don't want to be that guy, you know, that's all about you and you don't talk to anybody else or whatever. You'd be cordial, you know, but at the end of the day, everything that you do is going to be the betterment of yourself. Um, because even in the hit, even the hitting coaches or pitching coaches or whatever, there's some good guys in professional baseball, no doubt. Um, but I always tell guys, uh, you know, no one's coming up with you. You know, I'm not coming up with you. I, I never played a game with you, uh, even though I help you. But at the same time, you're the only one that's going to get you where you're going because no one no one signs a professional contract to be a career minor leaguer. But 90% of guys are career minor leaguers. Yeah. And I'm one of those guys. And so, you know, uh, there there are things that you learn that professional baseball is cutthroat. It is not fair. There are a ton of politics involved in professional baseball, but the the average fan has no idea about. But you take those three, at least those three right there, and you put it into any job. I mean, people are listening in your line of work. 
those three things are probably present, at, at least two of them, you know, um, that, that's definitely the politics are everywhere. So when you go in, you got to look out for yourself. And so when you go see a minor league game, um, yeah, it's we want to win the game because it definitely makes a long season more enjoyable. I can tell you that when you're winning more ga- games, if you're 30 games out of first place and it's August and you got it's August 1st and you got 30 games left, um, it's not fun. But if you're winning, uh, definitely makes the bus rides more enjoyable. You know, if you can make a 16-hour bus ride enjoyable, uh, it makes getting uh, getting up and ready for that game at seven o'clock on August 26th more enjoyable. Um, so, so, but you definitely, definitely have to look out for yourself, and it's it's not really a balancing act other than, you know, you just make sure that you're taken care of and and you respect the people around you trying to do the same thing. And uh, something that you you said on on the podcast with Joe really struck me it was it was the really the final eight minutes of um, when you were talking about good batting, and um, mm. and it was I was thinking, I was like physically arrested when I, I was just sitting in my chair and I just you know I just listened to it and then rewound it and sort of took some notes, and it was oh, wow uh, thank you man yeah it, it really what struck me was you said. You know, I know for a fact I didn't know what effort it took to be the greatest. And then, and then you're like, guys, you are not working hard. And it was like you, people who think they're working hard really don't. They're working, but they're not working hard. And I, I wonder, how do you, how does one reach that definition of what hard work looks like? And maybe like, what is that gauge? Like, how did you? come to know what hard work looked like so then you had something to measure your own work against well uh, the the number one thing and it's funny you say that because i have this conversation more and more and i think it's you know you got all this social media right and i mean obviously i'm on social media and I, i love to use it and i think it's it's there's a lot of good to it and obviously we've all seen the bad but a lot of it is you see these kids that they'll post on their Instagram or Twitter of them lifting and doing this and that. And you're just like, well, if you were really working hard, the hardest guys that I know that I, that I've been around hardest workers, I don't see anything on social media. Not that you could be the hardest worker and put stuff on. But my point being is if you are in from a little town, uh, oh, you know, you, you, you've lived over here. So, you know, this is more populated than other regions uh, of the country. And I do a lot of traveling too. And I want to, I want to, you know, tell kids like, listen, you think you're working hard. And I was a case in point too. I thought I was working hard in high school mm-hmm. and I go to college and like, wow, man, this is, I never lifted by the way. Lifting was still taboo in high school for baseball. And I go and I go from zero to a hundred. Like I got this guy that, you know, Mick who ended up going to Notre Dame, being Notre Dame strength coach for many years. And, you know, I got, and I think he's at Ohio State now. He was in Urban Meyer's book. Um, so Mick is sitting there, and he's just destroying us. And me, I'm 162 pounds, six foot two, coming out of high school. I never lifted a weight. That my minus five aluminum bat was the heaviest thing I, I lifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then I saw what that football player looked like, and then I saw what that Kenyon Martin basketball player looked like, lifting and working out. I'm like, I'm not even close. So my point is. I like to tell kids, like, listen, you're not working hard because you haven't experienced being around the greatest in the game. Now, it's very, very tough to get that access. That's the problem. I'm very fortunate I have access to that. 
and what I try to do in certain instances, I try to bring, I've done this. I've brought guys with me to work out with guys that I feel are the best at what they do. And just to watch, you don't have to work out with them. I just want you to see it because seeing is believing, right? Just to feel it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm big on feel and I want you to feel the atmosphere. I want you to feel, because there's one thing, it's like going to a live event, right? You can listen to the guy's album. You can watch a guy on, on, like if you've ever been to an NFL game on the sidelines, like that's the thing, or or an NHL game live and see how fast the game is, because TV will slow down a lot, but even, even a baseball game, but but feel it, sense it, smell it. Um, just get that sense because then once you see it, you're definitely going to believe that, well, I'm not working hard enough and I got to, I got to, you know, really turn it up, you know, a notch or 10 notches or 20 notches. Yeah. Cause you, th- you think of you know, guitarists or something in a, you know, that make it, you know, the big guys, say Metallica or something that, you know, Kirk Hammett, their lead guitarist, he's, you know, when they were coming up, they're playing. They're on their guitars eight hours a day. I'm reading Bruce Springsteen's memoir right now, and he, when he was coming up, he's playing. He's playing eight hours a day, noodling on his guitar. Like that is, I mean, you have to see it and you have to read it. But like, a, a musician might be able to say, okay, well, I'm playing a half an hour a day, and or whenever I want. Like now, I know what hard work looks like. So it's that must be such a valuable lesson for you to be able to give that to your athletes and be like, okay, well, if you want to be the best you can be, that's what you have to do. And now you know how to do it. So get after it. So that must, that's just an incredible thing that you give those players, those certain, yeah, that want to do it. Yeah. And and you bring up a good point. I mean, what you're describing with the, with the guitarists and anybody that's, that's a master of what they're doing, it's, it's deliberate practice. You know, it's having a purpose. Like we were talking about before for everything that you do, it's deliberate practice deep work um you know uh that kind of stuff is is what makes you good it's not you know swinging a bat once a week getting in the gym three times a week for an hour and just doing beach muscles and you know posting a pick it's it's that continuous you know i mean malcolm gladwell has the ten thousand hour thing i think it gets a little bit blown out of proportion where people just like in anything in today's society i feel everything everybody takes it literally so they say, oh, I got set the clock now, 10,000 hours, I should be an expert. No, it's not what he was yeah. saying. He's 8,000 to go. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But, but to your point, those, the people that are the best at what they do, they, that's that deliberate work. That's that just 1% better, as Joe talks about. Just every, every day, you, you just continue just to grind away, grind away, grind away. And, I, and, and someone asked me on a, on a show recently about, you know, well, how did you get to, you know, doing what you're doing or how, you know, I think they said how, how good you're, I'm not, I'm not that good. I just, I'm trying to get better every day. But I said, you know what? I look back and I did, I had 10 years of baseball Academy doing lessons. And so for me, I look back on it and I didn't realize until he said something about it, like and asked that question. I'm like, wow, you know what? You know, 10 years and doing at least five days a week, sometimes seven, depending on the year, uh, time of year. And you know, you're doing it at least four or five hours a day. And I'm working with all sorts of different guys. You know, uh, earlier on, I could work with a 10-year-old one hour and a, and a 17-year-old the next and a college player the next. And then as years go on, I, I start working with the pros and stuff like that. And But all those experiences, what I was doing was it was deliberate practice. Every day I was learning something new. I was testing things out. I was mastering my, my um, 
you know, my, my speech, my communicative skills, my, the way I was going about things. I, I learned what to do, what not to do. I learned what worked for this guy, but didn't work for that guy. So all that stuff, I was doing it too. And, and so I, I'm forever grateful for that opportunity to have those 10 years of really just that deep work, that deliberate practice. And I think anybody, you talk about that artist or the author or whatever, I mean, people that really, it takes time and people that really are uh, deliberate in what they do and they have a purpose and they understand why they're doing it, then all of a sudden, yeah, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road, you're seeing that that tip of the iceberg, right? But people don't know, under, you know, understand or they never seen what lies below that ocean surface to see how many years and how many hours that it took you to get there. And what I love about the the Good Batting book what, is that it's such a it's such a principle based book. I mean, I feel like anyone you don't even have to be into hitting, and I was obsessed with hitting when I was playing, so I was just eating up some of the technical aspects too. But I re, I really just love how it's you could almost substitute hitting or or whatever for whatever your profession or pursuit is, and um, I love I love that it. It's, it goes out of its way not to be technical. It's a very sort of meditative approach to a craft. And so um, I wondered, like, how did, you, how did you come to that as your approach for the book? And, and then why did you decide to sit down and, and put, put these principles on paper? Well, I mean, the, fir- the first part, I mean, I, for, for me, like I say in the book, you know, you know good batting is a hashtag. It's something I like to use um, – you know, a lot with guys and it's kind of a, a, a kind of catchy thing. So it was like, Hey, Sif, good hitting. I said, good batting. Um, but like I say in the book, it's not only a mindset, but it's a way of life. And, and the reason I wrote the book the way it is, is because for me, I, I'm big on teaching the person first and the player second. Like we talked about a little bit before today in terms of, you know, we're dealing with human beings. So, you know, I don't know whether the guy plays 10 years in the big leagues or he never steps foot on a pro field or he never steps foot uh, in the big leagues. I want to make sure that he understands what it takes to succeed at something. In this case, it would be baseball. So when they're done playing, if they want to, you know, go into business or they want to open their own car wash or restaurant or they want to do something else, hopefully the things that we talked about throughout their career expands way beyond the playing field and they've got to know themselves better. They, I'm big on knowing thyself. I want them to know thyself. Now that takes time. You know, you don't wake up one day and say, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Um, that's that deliberate practice we talked about. But for me, you know, the reason that I, I, I wrote the book the way I did was because I wanted it. It's a baseball book. I know I can grab you with the baseball part, but hopefully by the time I, you get done reading it, um, you've taken something out that you can implement in your daily lives. And, and I, you know, I, I, I read a lot, like I told you, and I've read a lot of books. And I, for me, I hadn't come across yet something that did both. And it's a very short book. Uh, the reason I had it, it it's so short is because of the fact that I know people's attention spans nowadays, especially with the younger players. Uh, you know, a lot of high schools buy this uh, for their team, and there's a lot of young kids that read it um, in teenage and stuff like that. They're so used to clicking on their phone and something coming up. So I know if I wrote a 300-page book, there's nobody going to read it. Mm-hmm. You know that that it could affect. Now, maybe somebody like you or me would read it, but you know, and, and maybe and turn it around and implement it to their to their kids that they're working with. But I really wanted this to not only what the coaches could read, but also the players in the short. And and on purpose, I left pages blank 
in the book to take notes. And uh, I don't, you know, this is the first time I'm telling people about it, but there's a re- there's a reason I left it blank because I want people to be able to take notes in it. And um, so it doesn't read like a book in terms of uh, it doesn't flow. It's not a narrative. Um, it's it, 10 chapters that's broken down into stuff that uh, you can use right away. Almost like the stuff I wish I knew uh, before I got to college baseball or the things I wish I knew before I started my high school baseball career. It's kind of a book like that where it just every opportunity, the biggest, the big, the big things that you're going to go through in your career, high school and college, and even in pro ball, a lot of the pro guys that I work with, they read it and they, they love it because it, it kind of reinforces what we talk about or makes them, makes them really think in a different way in terms of, okay, that's the way I want to do it because you now you've helped me push me to say, this is the way I'm going to do it. Not anybody else telling me what to do. So the reason I, I have it the way it is and structured the way it is, is because I definitely want it to, to be something that uh, people can number one read, um, translate into their own language. I'm big on that. I'm big on individualization, customization. I want I want people to do it the way they want to do it. I'm just going to help you nudge yourself in that direction. I'm not going to tell you what to do, not one way or the highway. And then two, you know, I but I want it to be a book that you reference over and over again. Uh, and different parts and different chapters that you can just pick up. Boom. If you're having trouble with your approach, boom. The the, the chapter on approach reread that. And then all of a sudden, hopefully that'll get you back on and something to carry around with you in your bag. You can keep it in your suitcase. You can keep it in your backpack, whatever the case may be. It's pretty easy to, to, uh, ship around with you and just keep, uh, in your back pocket for reassurance. You brought up a point about, you know, knowing, knowing yourself. And, um, I, uh, I had a conversation with a former professional ballerina, a couple months ago and she was hmm. dancing in New York city and everything. And I was just, I'm always curious what, what separates what artists who make it and those who just sort of like languish and squalor, even though they have a lot of talent. And, um, she said, uh, the best dancers are the ones that are the ones that know who they are as an artist. And I was just really struck by that. And then you bring it up in your book and then you, you talk about like ugly swings, like a, a Hunter Pence. And, um, hmm. it also made me think of an anecdote. I think like Kari Ostremski used to have sort of an off kilter swing and uh, people tried to change him. And I think Ted Williams said, like, if you can hit 400 standing on your head, don't let anyone tell you to, you know, hit on your feet. Like basically, you know, more or less, that's it. It's like, just like you're saying, like, know yourself and lean into your strengths. And I think that's just, you know, so important. And how often have you, to that point, how often have you seen people just try to carbon copy their swing, say after like a Pujols or Ken Griffey, and uh, instead of just saying, "Oh, this is how I can get from 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 my shoulders and chop down to the ball, point A, point B. This is how I do it, and this is how I'm able to make full contact." Yeah, I mean, I think you can look to social media to figure out how many people are trying to get kids to do it one way, you know, like a Pujols or a Cabrera or Donaldson. But what's lost in all that, in my opinion, is all those guys, to your point, have figured out how they do it and how she was talking about. I mean, I, I was a switch hitter. I had two different swings, two different mentalities. I was bipolar, <laughs> if you want to think of it that way, you know. So, you know, I, I, I was carrying two uh, luggage racks to the field every day and hoping that at least one of them worked. Um, so, you know, that was a whole, you know, that was a whole different ball game in itself. But you know, I think uh, I talk about we had the 12 days of Christmas on uh, KWB radio and, and Joe kind of set me off on the last day about, 
you know, something that I talk about frequently is why are there so many hitting coaches out there today, but at the same time, so few good hitters? Because in my mind, if you have all these hitting coaches out there, and again, I'm included in that group, I'm a hitting coach. Shouldn't there be an abundance of good hitters if we have so many hitting coaches? But the, the sad part is there aren't. I mean, I talk to scouts. I see it myself. It's tough to find a bat, you know, to draft. And you're getting guys that are getting drafted, and God bless them. I mean, you know, some of the guys I work with, they're, they're very fortunate to get a lot of money to sign. Uh, and they're great athletes. And, and some of them are really, really good, you know, swingers of the bat. But they, just like anybody else, they just haven't learned how to hit yet. And they will because, you know, they're 18 or they're 20, and eventually they come around. But my point is that there are so many coaches out there that are forcing kids to swing like a player that and they, they don't realize that okay you, you spoke about pool holes well that guy is what six four two fifty whatever his body moves way differently than a 12 year old way differently than a 21 year old um, he's his own person so he's gonna he's gonna do things that are different than everybody else uh, but he's found out how he likes to do it and uh, it's a it's a copy and paste league um, and I think so you know the first team that had a R&D department. Now it seems like everybody has one. You know, it's a copycat league. Uh, I think all of them are like that, hockey, NFL, whatever. But these coaches are trying to say, wow, this guy does this, so therefore, because he's great and he gets paid a lot of money, let's copy what he's doing. Well, for me, it's like, let's not copy the swing, right? Because I, to your point, I don't see anybody teaching a Hunter Pence swing. Mm-hmm. I don't see anybody teaching a David Eckstein swing. I don't see anybody teaching a Jeff Bagwell swing. If you want to go back to a Jeff yeah. Bat, anybody, oh, yeah. you know, but, uh, you know, teach their work ethic. Yeah. Teach, uh, their purpose behind everything. Teach their process. Teach, right. Teach the process. Uh, kind of going back to what we talked about. If you can find tape or you can bring a kid in again, it's just tough to find access to these guys, but to be able to sh- just to show them what it looks like in terms of all that stuff we just talked about, instead of trying to copying, copying a swing, that kind of stuff. So I, I think it's 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 actually a disservice being done to a lot of players nowadays. But, you know, like instead of copying that swing, copy the other stuff we talked about, the work ethic and so on and so forth. And the, what's, you know, as we were alluding to with with, uh, with the book, it's very you know, meditative. It really brings you into the approach and a very that sort of that between the ears part. And as you know, is. Uh, sometimes as as athletes, sometimes thinking is quite possibly the worst thing that can happen. At some point, you have to rely on instincts. But when you start thinking too much, it can be crippling. And now you're talking on an 0 for 15, 0 for 20 slump. So I, I wonder, like, how do you coach a player who might be thinking too much? And how do you sort of rein that in or and or strike that balance between the necessary mental approach but also – learning to turn that off and let let the hard work and the instincts take over. Yeah, I mean, I'll reference Tim Grover, who wrote the book Relentless. Uh, if those who haven't read it, it's a, definitely a, a high recommendation of mine. But he talks a lot about, you know, he was Michael Jordan's trainer for years. He does, uh, he trained Kobe, D. Wade, all, you know, all the big, big guys in the game. Um, I think he's even in football now. But the point of his book was, and relentless was, you know, how do we make players not think, just be reactive, like you're saying. And I love that book because it reinforced everything that, you know, you learn as you play and you start playing with these these 
these big stars and these guys that that have slowed the game down so much compared to you as a youngster. But you know, it's if you it kind of goes back to if you know thyself, if you know the way that you're going about it, you know the purpose of everything that you're doing, and you know why you're doing it. You just fully submerse yourself into being comfortable in your own skin. You're not trying to do too much. It's a it's a purely reactive uh, environment where you you're just you're like it's for hitters, for instance. Like I'll give you an example. There's a player that I had uh, recently in the last couple of years who was really good, got to the big leagues, and then a the year after he he let a lot of uh, things that were out of his control really. Uh, really deter him during the year and really put him in a bad mental state where he started to think of everything that you could imagine under the sun that he shouldn't be thinking about. Or you're like, why are you even thinking about that? Things like that. But what happened was because the pressure is so high, you start to go outside of your your lane. You know, I, I love to talk about staying in your lane, but sometimes now you're swerving. Mm. You know, and that year, that next year, he had his worst year of his pro career, swerving. And, and then the year after that, you know, he came back and he re kind of, kind of reprogrammed, recalibrated. And he said, you know what, I, I'm not worried about that, you know? And, um, then he had a better year. He got himself back to neutral. And then the year after that, he had an absolute monster year because he stopped thinking. And the way that he stopped thinking was because the fact that number one, he found himself knowing that, okay, why am I dealing with all this extracurricular stuff where I don't need to worry about it. Number two, why am I trying a bunch of different swings to gain a result? Whereas I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to do what that got me drafted. I'm going to do what got me to the big leagues. And number three, it's the peace of mind knowing that I don't care what people think. I know I'm uncomfortable, but I'm learning how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So the way that he went about his training I, I put him. I, I put him on a machine. He never hit off a machine in the wintertime, and I blew his doors off the first couple of weeks, and breaking bats, uncomfortable. But you know what? To his credit, he got through all that. He learned a lot about himself because he put, he he was willing to put himself through that uncomfortable stage where he came out on the other side, not worrying about what other people thought, not worried about what the pitcher was going to do to him total control of what he was going to do and he was in that what the people called the zone he was in total control of everything and that's where the confidence came from and and the confidence allowed him not to think if that makes sense yeah well you you hit upon two of your big principles which are uh being comfortable being uncomfortable and also trying to control the controllables which is something you write about and i it's it's very simple and like really tweetable at the, to use a modern term. And um, But when you think about it in those terms, you can really ground your process and control what you can control. And when you do that, it really does – it does – things seem to start to almost – almost like you're doing this Jedi mind trick on the whole, on the whole scheme. But it's – you have to get to that place. And I think what you've written here is, is getting people to that place. I'm sure this is – 50, you know, it's 50 pages of like pure power when you think about it. No, I appreciate that, Brent. I really do. And, and, and to add to kind of what I was, I was saying, in order to learn, you have to fail. And I feel like a lot of parents and a lot of coaches, and it's, it's probably more parents because they're around more than coaches, but they don't allow the young person to fail. 
it's in we're in this society where we're going to you know coddle them um if johnny doesn't start on this on on this travel team well we're just going to pick him up and move him over to this travel team where he's going to play more rather than well johnny's not playing for a reason so it probably the reason is because he's not good enough hmm. and let's let's train let's get him better and if he can't get any better well that'll tell you well that's not the sport for you or that's not what you want to be doing in life so if a lot of it stems from early on you know they're not comfortable being uncomfortable because they've never been given the opportunity to fail and i'm talking not just fail a little bit i'm talking fall flat on your face and fail if you think about it and you look at the stats of of every athlete that's that's played any sport there's always one year in their career there's always that one year where they absolutely tank if you think about it, you go back. There's uh, again, the internet's great. You can go and look, but there's there's at least one year in everybody's career that they tank. But they have two choices, as we all know. They either accept that and they're done for the rest of their career, or they take that and they go and they turn it around and they go and have an unbelievable rest of their career. But there's every year there is one year that they have that they absolutely tank. And so they have two choices. They can either take that and let it ruin their career, or second, they can learn from that, like that guy I was just telling you about. He absolutely tanked, and then he got himself back. And then the rest of their career, they just take off, and they they have that sustained consistency throughout their career that people don't even remember that one year that they tanked. I mean, that's, to me, the separator is how you react to a situation can completely change the situation itself. What's it like for you to see the light go on in a player that might have had that bad year or they have never quite, you know, they've never quite achieved what maybe in their head they want to achieve, but then, you know, through the, the principles you coach them on to see it finally go off and then all of a sudden the game is is slowing down and the ball grows and their back grows and they're just playing blooper ball out there just just mashing to the alleys. So like I wonder what that's what that's like for you as a coach to see that light go on. Well, like I said before, I mean, I, the the why, my why every day is to help somebody. I mean, I get out of, out of bed. Number 1, I'm grateful to have another opportunity on this earth. Number 2 is how can I help somebody? Those are the two things I I sit on the foot of my bed every morning and, I, and I'm grateful and, I, and I'm determined to help somebody today. So when that happens, I get emotional. And my players have seen it. Uh, I'm half Italian, so the tears are, are readily available. <laughs> so for me, I, I get emotional because for me, people say you're living vicariously through others. I am living vicariously through others because I've been there. I understand you know, what it feels like to fail. I understand what it feels like to be at the bottom rung and the stresses of pro ball and the pressures of pro ball, all that kind of stuff. What I do not know from personal experience is what it's like to be an all-star in the big leagues, even though guys I work with uh, have have achieved that. I don't know what it's like to have multi-million dollar contracts being given to me uh, from a personal experience, but I know guys that I've lived, I've been there with them and experienced it with them, but uh, only vicariously through them because I'm standing next to them. So when they go from uh, the bottom and they they come out on top, 
because of all the effort that they've done, the hard work they've done, they just, I'm just very grateful for the opportunity to be able to help along the way at times. So when I see them uh, succeed for not only them, because you got to think about it too, some of these guys have families because you're playing for either the family you don't have right now. That was probably the best piece of advice I ever got playing. But the, the piece of advice was, you know, take care of the family you don't have right now. Mm. I was like, whoa. And I was at 24. We didn't have a family then. You know, our son was born in 2009. And it was like, you know, think about the family you don't have right now. Make decisions based upon that. So either that or they have families. They have three kids, four kids. And, you, you know, you got you got to take care of your family. So there's so when you see that and you see them getting emotional, obviously you've seen everything they've gone through. You've been there at the lowest of the lows. For me, it's just pure emotion, and it's just beautiful to see them uh, be able to achieve their dreams and their goals. That's uh, that's wonderful, and I, I know for a fact that I would have had a much more fulfilling uh, career in baseball if I had had this little volume of, and I was able to walk on to my to the UMass Amherst team um, as a you know, as a, as a freshman on a on a torn PCL, so I, I made it on my arm Ooh. and my bat, and. Um, so it was, I, I know for a fact, and then I was, I was cut my sophomore year. So I, I know I would have had a much more uh, fulfilling career had I, had I had something like this. Because it keeps, not only does it have just great principles, it keeps things in perspective in a way that, that, um, that I think every, every player uh, would, just, you know, would just benefit. This almost, you know, when you're, every, co- every high school coach should, when you're a freshman, you should have to read this, and it's. I think it'll. I think you would just have much more satisfied ball players. Not to mention better ball players, uh, if they just uh, took uh, took an afternoon and, and read this and started applying the principles. So I think you've done a service to the baseball community by writing this book, Kevin. It's really wonderful. Well, thank you very much, man. I really appreciate that, and it, it has. I mean, like the the number one team in the country, Barb High School in Louisiana, they purchase it for their team. There's been other teams that have purchased it as well for their players. And like you said, I mean, it, if you read it cover to cover, it takes you maybe an hour. Um, if you're a slow reader, maybe a little bit more. But uh, again, the point of the book is to uh, be able to reference it. Um, you can take notes in it. Um, it's very, uh, like you said, just hopefully it provides that perspective um, to, to, to players and, and so that you're not so hard on yourself. And I, I, I love to say, and I put it at the beginning of the book, hitting is simple. It's just not that easy. And so <laughs> yeah. what we're trying to do is just simplify this, the most complicated thing to do in sport, I think. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. And this has been, I could talk another two hours with you about ball and hitting and just these types of, these types of principles that make for uh, just a, a, a much more fulfilled creator of good work. And, um, but, uh, I'll I'll let you go on this Sunday afternoon and and uh, thank you so much for taking the time Kevin um and uh maybe we'll be uh we'll certainly be in touch down the road I hope. Oh, uh, thank you so much Brendan. I really am grateful for this opportunity uh, to to be on your show and and I love the work that you're doing and um it's pretty cool to know that you've got some local roots too so I would love to continue this conversation another time. Oh, fantastic. Looking forward to it Kevin. So uh, you, you take care and uh we'll be in touch down the road. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Sounds good. All right. So long.